Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the show. This week, Mary's actually away. So I am delighted to say I'm being joined this week by a guest host. But it's someone that listeners will already know because she was the guest on last week's episode, actually. So delighted to welcome back this time as co-host, Nikki Matthews. Nikki, hi. Hi, Dan. It's great to ask the questions this time. Yes, I was going to say, what does it feel like to be sitting in the host seat now and not in the guest seat? That feels amazing. Good, good. Now, what's going on in your world? I mean, Mary and I keep talking about the new working world, hybrid meetings, Christmas, all those sort of things. You know, what's um, what, what's going on in your world at the moment? Yeah, it's been really good coming into the office a lot more than, say, a few months ago. Really enjoying that, enjoying going out again. Just good getting back to normal life, really, and being able to do all the activities that we couldn't do before. You're a full-time researcher, so how has the new sort of hybrid working mode sort of fitted that? Yeah, it's been good. We, we're still doing a lot of our research meetings virtually. I, I can't say there's there's a substantial difference to doing them in person, but I think there is value occasionally meeting manager in person. Cool. And, and on a personal front, I know you think you said before when you've been on that singing is one of your pastimes. So any new stuff on the go there? Yeah, so I've kept that up. I do lessons every week. So hopefully doing a performance in the near future there. Um, also taken up increased amount of exercise recently. So making that a priority. Yeah, what, what kind of stuff are you, are you into there? Oh, everything. But cardio is my recent addition. I've always done swimming since a really young age. Okay, so you're, you're not getting out on the sort of cold, dark running trails. It's more in the... Oh, no, this is all nice and warm indoors. Yeah, it is a bit... How about you? It, well, it is tougher to get out, out on those cold, dark mornings and evenings now, isn't it? But I've been, I've still been trying to get my stuff done in the morning um, before work and, and get, go to the gym. So that's still just about working. Um, but running's been off the cards for a little while for me. I've had a few injuries, which is a bit of a shame. Anyway, really looking forward to hosting this episode. Let's get on with the show, shall we? Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. I've actually really been looking forward to speaking to today's guest. And that's because not only is he a fellow podcaster himself, always good to speak to one, but also he was actually up at COP26 itself, that big event we've all been talking about last couple of weeks. So I'm delighted to welcome co-head of Responsible Investment, a man group, Jason Mitchell. Jason, welcome. Great. Thanks. It's fantastic to be here. So Jason, if you could give us a sense of your role generally, what you do on a day-to-day basis, that would be great. So that's changed a lot over the past, yeah, I'd say, 10, 12 years I've been with Man Group. So I came from the portfolio management side, running long-short strategies into long-only strategies in the sustainability and the RI space up until about two and a half, three years ago, where I moved into a dedicated role as co-head of responsible investment. And so my job right now is to oversee research at a firm level, frameworks, we're talking regulatory and policy frameworks, organizational frameworks. Stewardship is a big, not surprisingly, because of the roots that I have in the discretionary side, I oversee a lot of our stewardship efforts. And I, in particular, advise on a number of discretionary and private markets and our fund of funds businesses. That's great. I mean, tons to get into there as well as all the COP26 stuff. But just quickly, before we get into all that stuff, Jason, why don't you just tell us something we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? So two things. I made a small attempt at being an actor 
in Hollywood. I went to Berkeley in California. That obviously wasn't successful. And then secondly, coming out of college, and my mom's a professor of English, but all through college, I had sort of my heart on becoming a poet, perhaps surprisingly. And so coming out of college, I was about to do a Master of Fine Arts at some of the top universities, Columbia and Iowa, in particular for MFA programs. And I ended up taking, because I'd done a bit of programming within university as well, ended up taking sort of a swerve and suddenly going into finance. So people are always a little bit surprised at, I guess, that creative element that I had early on. Yeah, that's really cool. That's a hell of a swerve, isn't it? It's a nice little juxtaposition of skills that we don't tend to see very often. So I won't go into whether poetry sort of is helpful in putting your PowerPoint presentations together or any of that, but it must be a healthy balance of different perspectives. So Jason, reflecting then on the last couple of weeks, COP26, you were up there. What were some of your own personal takeaways just reflecting on the whole experience? It was fascinating. And I think that sort of my views are certainly colored by the fact that I was up there for day ones through day four. I think some of the criticism has been about the UK that they've sort of curated that first week with a lot of progressive finance heavy announcements. I would say that I came away really feeling like this cop, and for context, I've been at a number of other cops. So I was at Copenhagen, COP15, and and COP21 in Paris, some of the most consequential COPs. This one was all about delivery and delivery mechanisms. And it really felt like there's clearly a lot of room to debate around what forms those come in. But the focus was less about the existence of those and more about the form of those and sort of how we calibrate them. So I ended up leaving pretty optimistic. I mean, clearly looking over the last week, there's been a lot of vacillation in terms of the negotiating, particularly the language around this. There's been some progress, in particular, the fact that we've seen the inclusion of language like fossil fuel subsidies and coal, I should be specific, coal phase downs rather than phase outs. Obviously that was negotiated over the last 24 hours, but I mean, this is fairly new ground for us. I think that There's always going to be a cohort that looks at this in a very negative way. I would say I'm a big fan of Greta Thunberg. I would disagree with her sort of around the statement that COP26 is nothing more than a greenwashing festival. I mean, the fact is, if you meet a lot of those negotiators, and I had come to know a number of them from Zambia, from Rwanda, from a lot of LMDCs, like-minded developing countries, as well as developed countries, everyone, at least from my interaction, was deeply committed to creating a better deal. But you've got to realize that COPs are by nature classic collective action problems where you have these overlapping interests and preferences and these cross-cutting issues. They are incredibly difficult. And in particular, this one, we've got to remember, the policy agenda going into COP26 is effectively double that of a typical cop. We're playing catch up on a lot of earlier cops, particularly around issues like Article 6, carbon markets. So I left feeling more optimistic, frankly. You could sort of cast me as Panglossian, as naive, but I'm actually quite optimistic, particularly going into COP27. That's really, really interesting to hear you reflect on it like that. And I suppose the context of how it was sort of phased is quite important there, isn't it? It's a bit like when you host the Olympics, you put your best sports sort of in the first week to get yourself up on the medal table. And it was clearly that, wasn't it? There were some early runs on the board deliberately and 
the period you were there was probably the most positive. I guess downside is it maybe finished on a slightly negative note because the last act seemed to be watering down of things. But important to bear in mind those early wins when you look at it in the round. That's actually a really good point. I think what can't be ignored is the fact that the UK really stepped up in this, in my view. I say that because, as you mentioned, I've got my own podcast, A Sustainable Future. I think it's interesting over the last, I think, two or three months ago, I had Chris Stark, the CEO of the Climate Change Committee, the statutory and independent body appointed by the UK government to set and grade the UK government's trajectory around net zero. And there was a lot of criticism coming out of the Climate Change Committee around what the UK was doing. And so it was sort of interesting to see that transform into COP26. I think what we're left with, and I use this as a specific slide when I present on COP26, I think what we're left with is a really powerful UK example of that transmission from an abstract national commitment, this pledge, down to sectoral action. What does it mean in terms of transportation? What does it mean in terms of heating or electrification. And I think clearly the UK as host was under a lot of pressure to sort of build out that blueprint. But I think it's a pretty powerful blueprint for others to follow. Do you think that people attending COP should have used more eco-friendly measures to get there rather than private jets? Do you think that lead by example would be better? Absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, it's the reason I took a five-hour train from 5 a.m. from Houston up there. And I saw many other people in the finance community. I think we have to lead by example. I think that there's also a tendency for business to excuse climate action to individual action. And frankly, I don't think that's necessarily appropriate. I think we all have individual actions. I don't think it's right for businesses to sort of excuse it or sort of push it onto individuals to act. I do think that if you're going to COP, the most natural way is the most sustainable way. And what would you say investors should take away from COP? What would be the key points for them? I would say that one, and again, this is coming from my experience over the last several COPs, is that finance is a bigger and bigger more cohesive, articulate actor in all of this discussion. I think five to 10 years ago, it was fairly atomistic. It was pieces and parts, a big system. And bit by bit, thanks to great initiatives like the UN Principles for Responsible Investment, thanks to great NGOs and charities like ShareAction, it's just gotten stronger as a group. And it's really becoming more comfortable in that seat at that table. And I think what's sort of interesting is this sort of change in dialogue too. When we think about engagement as investors, traditionally it's always been about micro-engagement. It's been about that sort of engagement level between investors and corporates. And that particularly the last two years, I think has changed. It really sort of manifested in my mind at COP, which is there's now kind of emerging, call it this macro level of engagement. And so regulators, policymakers, politicians are really welcoming investors, corporates at the table to sort of nudge, push the conversation along. And so I think that's interesting. Another point I'd say is I was lucky enough to be at a dinner with Nicholas Stern from the Stern Report, one of the top two climate economists speaking about this. And he ended up saying, And it's fairly simplistic, but it really seemed to resonate with me, which is that we're in a hurry. 
we know what to do, and the answer is international. He was sort of making parallels to post-war reconstruction, so the economic rebuilding that we were doing. In some way, really, I sort of thought about this idea of regime change in the way that we thought about post-war institutions and rebuilding Bretton Woods institutions. To what degree does that regime change in a climate context? How do we think about rebuilding, reinforcing, making more resilient these institutions? It's a great point around the profile that the finance had at COP26. And I hope and I expect that that might be one of the things that gets remembered for in many ways. And I suppose us in the industry, we sort of knew that was the case. That wasn't a huge surprise in one sense, but I suppose it's still helpful, isn't it, for people to be seen that that's clearly a seat there. That's a role, if you like, that is now expected that it is sort of finance is central to the whole conversation. Because I guess the pushback that you still get sometimes from people is saying, well, this is a government problem. Governments need to sort out climate change in the financial sector. We're just worried about sort of efficient markets, pricing things correctly, disclosures and those sort of things. And I think anyone watching Glasgow, you surely have to call that argument into question, wouldn't you say, after the, the role of financer? You're absolutely right. When you sort of look at the fallout of Glasgow, particularly around coal and fossil fuel, what do you really have? And does that mean that post-Glasgow, that I think we need to lean a little bit more heavily on investor action? Frankly, and I know this is obviously a controversial discussion within the investor community, but whether it's divestment versus engagement, does the fact that we don't have a stronger policy solution out of COP26 mean that we have to rely more, you know, the response is a private sector response, an investor response around these things, at least until Cairo. Just quickly, one thing I've been saying there, to me, it feels like investors are sort of operating as if the phase-out wording was adopted three COPs ago sort of thing. I mean, it's kind of phase-out, phase-down. It's kind of investors have already, the ship has already kind of sailed on that. The other thing I would say is that the fact that we got a U.S., China agreement out of this. And these are small steps, but I think in the context of political economy, not finance, these are meaningful steps. I mean, the fact that we are on a bilateral basis, you and and China, recognizing climate change as a climate crisis, the semantics around this language are really, really important. And I think when you look at in the context of only the last two or three years, And the fact that net zero has kind of sprung and really accelerated through that, despite the fact that we've been stuck in a pandemic, I think there is a lot to say that there's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of work that's been done. So Jason, from an investment perspective, do you think there'll be winners, losers as a result of the policy actions from COP26? And how would you advise investors to adjust their portfolios to avoid being losers? Structurally, there will be winners and losers. On a long-term basis, it's hard to not say that given the change in wording or the introduction in new wording, effectively, even a phase down of coal or the fact that subsidies around fossil fuels, inefficient fossil fuels might be phased out. So I think that's there. I think what was interesting for me is that the transition is going to be incredibly volatile. In fact, probably perhaps more volatile than most people think. I mean, there's a sense of the energy transition being sort of linear and smooth. I think what we've seen even over the last two or three months is the ramifications of underinvestment within fossil fuel. Speaking to a number of integrated oil companies, state companies, and policymakers at COP26, I think 
they were keenly aware of this. And let me give you some examples. The idea being that like three to six months ago, from an EU or even UK policymakers' perspective, the priorities started with renewable energy and sort of fell down. Now with natural gas, at least on an EU basis, being up four or 500% over the past 12 months, that's forced a complete reordering to that on the short-term basis, meaning that a number of countries are kind of forced to think about how to at least capacity build in the short term. And I think it's brought up a lot of questions about security supply. The energy complex has always sort of been governed by a number of adages. One is quality buyers find quality sellers. And what you found and what was pronounced to me over COP26 is that with a typical wellhead being 6% less productive per annum and with basically underinvestment over the last five to eight years from a Western perspective, you've got basically your average wellhead 30 to 50% less productive. And what that's done is basically shift energy dependency towards different sources, Eastern Europe, Russia. You only have to look at the headlines over the last several weeks to look at that. In fact, actually, even over the last three or four days, Belarus is talking about withholding gas to Europe because of migrant issues. And so I think that there's this uncomfortable recognition that countries have to manage energy on a short-term basis, but sort of aligned to that net zero, low carbon transition on the long-term basis. Because the fact is, on a short-term basis, policymakers can't create a new class of energy poverty. So to me, that was interesting. There's going to be a lot of volatility, at least over the short term. That's super interesting. A couple of other areas I'd love to cover sort of around thoughts on emerging markets and also carbon pricing. Maybe we deal with the carbon pricing first. I've been plowing through articles trying to understand what the completion of that rule book actually means in practice. It seems like it's kind of pretty in the weeds type stuff. I don't know whether you've got sort of an overall view for investors on what that carbon pricing stuff means. The carbon markets rules, sorry, I mean, the rules for global carbon markets. For context, I mean, this is the one big issue that intellectually everyone is sort of looking at on every cop. I think it would be naive to think that there was a sudden breakthrough for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, for Article 6 essentially tries to create a global pricing market. And there are a number of different forms to create that. But I think by Paris Agreement rules, the idea is that you have sort of governance by a UN type body. That can come in different ways. You can have a global pricing regime, really difficult because when you look at the price of carbon globally, obviously many countries have it, others don't. The spectrum of it is just incredibly wide to more than $100 per metric ton to pennies per metric ton. So it's incredibly hard to sort of harmonize around something like this. You can move towards something called the Climate Club, which Nordhaus, the other Nobel Prize winner of economics, had talked about. And basically, you're talking about regional pools trying to harmonize the US versus the EU versus Asia. That's probably more realistic. I think going into this, COP, the big problem in terms of solving that was that where's the US? The US had very little to bring to the table in this one relative to the Paris COP, because despite the fact that Biden had a majority or has a majority in Congress and obviously the White House, it's very slim and you have coal state Democrats who are, I wouldn't say anti-climate, but they are coal sympathetic. That's a problem. You also had initiatives like the Baker-Schultz 
effort. It was a bipartisan effort in the U.S., which was really pushing for a carbon dividend. There was a lot of bipartisan support for that. Unfortunately, over the last several years, both Baker and Schultz have sadly passed away, as has that bipartisan effort. So I think despite Biden owning the White House and Congress, there's very little that the U.S. could kind of offer, except on a state basis. California, for instance, has a carbon market, but certainly not enough to legislate at the national level. I think that's kind of left us in an awkward position. And I think what you've seen out of this are some pragmatic actions around something called CBAM. It's the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. And it's just this awkward, clumsy effort to say, look, if we can't harmonize across price, how can we at least impose a notional price or something, even on a sectoral basis. And I was optimistic early in COP in seeing that the EU and the US had sort of applied a CBAM mechanism to steel. I was a little bit disappointed that they had not rolled that out to more sectors. So to give an example within steel, you've got the EU applying carbon pricing on steel and on the U.S. side, obviously the U.S. doesn't have sort of a national carbon pricing mechanism, but they're regulating towards lower carbon intensive grades. I call it green steel. And you've got this sort of asymmetric approach in trying to work towards better standards. It's really interesting some of the dynamics behind that that you're alluding to. I guess it's tempting to sort of always think, well, we just need to solve these things top down, one set of rules for everyone, which is, of course, incredibly hard. And I've heard people say that part of the beauty of the Paris Agreement was that it kind of put the ball back in the courts of the individual countries and kind of turned the whole process bottom up rather than top down. And I guess you could say the same a little bit for sort of the carbon pricing and some of the other things where you see these significant coalitions of the willing, if you like, in particular areas which form. They're not a complete consensus, but it's something to get started. And then the idea is that will attract other people over time. And it's interesting to see which dynamic is more successful, the kind of top-down, let's all agree on one set of rules that we all sign by, or the kind of let's get going with a coalition of people, which is a certain critical mass to get the thing going and try and get other big parties on board and then get others on board as well. It's all down to the politics, I guess, and the diplomacy, isn't it? And clearly, the LMDCs, the like-minded developing countries versus developed countries, the issue around how to fund climate is one of the big issues. No surprise, I mean, that's been sort of one of the gating blocking issues since the Paris COP. I think what's been interesting is, and again, for context, that's been about developed countries committing to 100 billion per annum, formally starting by 2023. I think that's slightly changed in some ways because it's now not just the 100 billion, but it's LND, loss and damage, which is for some a radioactive issue. No one likes to call it this, but it's effectively reparations for kind of historical climate damage, which could be significant for many of these countries. Jason, just talking about emerging markets, what do you see for investors there? They're obviously on quite a different trajectory to developed countries. So first, I think there's going to be a lot of work around how these global commitments relate to the national level. As I mentioned, I think earlier, the UK was sort of interesting in terms of really coming out with an ambitious net zero plan and 
offering through these different carbon budgets on a five-year kind of cadence, a look through at the sectoral level. But as you see more and more countries, particularly India, now that they've come out with this 2070 target, I think there's going to be more of an interest in terms of how these countries, China, India, one, how do they manage peak emissions, whether it's CO2 or GHG emissions? China is sort of set for mid-2025 to late 2030. India has talked about 2030, despite the net zero by 2070. So I think there's going to be a big amount of emphasis about how those national indices, those nationally determined contributions translate into sectoral planning. By that, I mean incentives, disincentives, behavior change, et cetera. I think for investors that it matters, I think, certainly for investors who've got large allocations to emerging markets, because net zero by 2050 has become a real standard and a real rallying cry in the UK, which is great, real clear standard for companies to aim at. But where you've got companies operating in economies which are on a slightly different trajectory to that, I think one does have to be a little bit sensitive to that. And it might be probably doesn't make sense to be rigorously applying that as a standard if you've got economies that are not on that trajectory is not going to work. Absolutely. I think one of the lessons, and this is certainly not a lesson out of COP26, but it's a recurring lesson, which is we have to be sympathetic to modern growth theories, particularly relative to developing countries. There's going to be significant pushback if they don't get some sort of runway relative to developed countries. I think one of the most interesting things, and India has taken some flack, particularly in that first week of COP, they've taken some flack for tabling a 2070 net zero target. The fact is most countries are tabling 2050. For India to do 2070 felt like a weak commitment, a weak ambition. The reality is the fact that they have pointed to peak emissions around 2030 and talked about particularly sort of the phase down of fossil fuel subsidies, which are incredibly important within India. I would highlight that they are incredibly important within India. Shows a willingness, I think actually kind of shows a fundamental recalibration of even the internal domestic political discussion, where as before, there was this suspicion about the West fettering, constraining India from its economic growth. And I think now coming out of this, we've seen India try to kind of come to terms with the climate economic realities of this and write their own sort of destiny. So one of the interesting things, I guess, from the perspective out of COP was, and I heard this from many policymakers, is that, look, the reality is a climate commitment even if it's 2060 China or 2070 India, is frankly, when you look at the teeth or the flesh of it, is much more powerful than a climate commitment by Australia, which sort of emerged as, as one of the bad guys of COP26, i.e. not sort of tabling that 2050 net zero agreement, but not really advancing any of the goals. It's a really important point because sort of analysts who look at this were actually citing the Indian commitment as quite a positive thing in that first week, weren't they? That was better than expectations. And you're right, the Australian commitment or lack of was a sort of below expectations type outcome. And I think it was in some ways helpful that India proposed a different date because it brings out to the front of the conversation is what trajectories are we all on? I keep trying to say to people, 
you shouldn't really focus on the end date of these net zero targets because what is so much more crucial is what happens over the next decade. Absolutely. It's the reductions on the way. So I think that end date quibbling over 2050 versus 2060 versus 2070, not necessarily a big deal, but it, it was helpful there, I think, because it added nuance to the whole conversation. It forced a bit of an explanation. And I do think India may be a little bit unfairly maligned in the headlines the last few days over how that outcome has come about, maybe. And that doesn't necessarily reflect some of the nuances we're getting into here about the give and take that had to sit behind that. It's actually a really important point that you bring up, the fact that coming out of this COP, whereas before, I think we've been sort of accustomed to these five-year cadences. And again, for context, I mean, COPs happen every single year, but the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions, the climate plans are expected post-COP to happen every five years. I think one of the really important things is coming out of COP26 is how can we play with time and degrees? So how can we run with the momentum and pull forward some of the reporting? So do we have to wait for five years from now for the next NDC? Or can we actually even start to pull forward as much as Cairo, the next COP? There's been talk about that. And I think what's interesting and often overlooked is Again, semantics are really important in this and sort of the change in language. But the fact that even when you look at limiting temperature rises from 1.5 to 2 degrees by 2100, which was in the old agreement, now that's changed to limiting temperature degrees by 1.5 to 2 degrees. And the point being that let's not back and load this stuff to 2100. I mean, let's try and very gradually push this forward and front end load some of this issue so we can solve it sooner than later. Post COP26, how are you thinking about investor climate action? I think as an investor, there are a couple things that you can't help but take away. I mean, first, if you're an asset manager or even an asset owner, you've got to be energized and exercised by the fact that timing is more fluid or more dynamic. What I mean by that is we have signed up to the Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance. So immediately coming out of COP26, we're thinking about how we can strengthen or pull forward some of those 2050 net zero targets ourselves. I think secondly, it's fantastic. It's often overlooked, but the fact is from IFRS and the ISSB announcement, the IFRS sort of announced the formation of the International Sustainability Standards Board, which effectively collapses a number of different standards, which is fantastic. So what we need is a bigger, better defined global baseline rather than a lot of different standards. So that's going to help at the corporate disclosure level and certainly at the investor level where looking for ESG data, climate data has been problematic. That harmonization point, we completely agree with that, by the way. I've been calling for a bit of harmonization. Certainly working with asset owners, what you often find is even asset owners approaching this in really good faith. They're really under quite a lot of pressure with the TCFD, with stewardship code, principles for responsible investment, with a statement of investment principles, with a net zero type plan. There's a lot of stuff there. and We are seeing a little bit of harmonization around some of those already. But I think harmonization doesn't get many headlines, does it? But it's a real win, isn't it? The other thing I'd say is that it's been interesting to see in a number of different shapes or forms, this sort of sway against fossil fuel or coal financing. So, I mean, that came in a number of different forms. It was more than 20 countries that committed to no longer financing unabated fossil fuel or coal. And then you found a spate of announcements by MDBs, multilateral development banks, that 
committed to no longer financing unabated fossil fuel projects by 2022. This, in my opinion, is really important. Again, to go back to sort of my own podcast, I had done one a number of months ago with, his name is Andrew McDowell, the vice president of the European Investment Bank. And you found, at least in the European context, this really interesting sort of pattern of European MDBs or DFIs that were moving away. So the EBRD, the EIB, moving away from financing unabated fossil fuel projects. You found the ECB even talking about moving away from brown to green with its asset purchase program. And I think this latest announcement, which includes the World Bank, the Asian Investment Bank, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the African Investment Bank, I mean, just some big, big hitters on the public financing side, just continues to move money away and lift the cost of capital for many of these projects. The cost of capital is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it is so double-edged for investors. That's that chart that everyone loves that shows the cost of capital for new oil projects going up to 20% and for renewables going down to sort of five. And it's good in many ways, but I do think there's some important stuff that goes unsaid about that chart, which is that at some point, the cost of capital goes up, it starts getting attractive to invest in, which is not necessarily great. And also on the renewables going down, you do need it to clear at a sensible level that where there's enough capital behind it to actually fulfill these projects. It's such an interesting question or discussion. I completely agree with you. This idea that, look, you get the cost of capital going up in these projects, the expected returns going up. I mean, the one thing I would say is that What many people, I think, misunderstand is that expected returns isn't realized returns. Realized returns is the sum of expected returns and unexpected returns. And divestment effects, a lot of this other stuff are really dampening that. I do think that there are some risks to sort of investing with the idea that these expected returns, these high cost of capitals turn into high expected returns is actually more ephemeral than it would seem. So Jason, next 12 months, obviously we've got COP27 in Egypt, we'll be around the corner, we'll be here before we know it. What are some of the things that you're looking out for that we should be thinking about over those next 12 months? I think you're going to find higher levels of scrutiny and a higher degree of momentum around net zero plans, I mean, particularly in lieu of the reporting requirements, for instance, within TCFD. I think that engagement might continue to build, particularly around climate issues. I think it'll be interesting to see how fast, particularly following that ISSB announcement from the IRFRS, to what degree we really sort of see some harmonization, some sort of change or convergence within data and the reporting standards. Jason, it's been a really fascinating conversation today. If there's one thing, what would you like listeners to take away from it? I would say that ESG, at least in my opinion, is so all-encompassing. It sort of ranges from the investment side to the research side to the compliance side, policy, regulatory, sales. It continues to grow. I'm always a little bit reluctant about applying fixed labels to it. I think it's important to talk or understand sort of the narrative around it. I, I think within this space, particularly as it becomes more and more crowded, And frankly, I think as there's more of an interest in terms of monetizing it through sort of products, it's important that you work with, and this is what I do, you sort of want to work with people that are truly passionate about this stuff rather than driven through purely corporate kind of monetary pecuniary interests. Jason, most underappreciated thing about responsible investing? I would probably go back to what I told you about the fact that 
expected returns don't equal realized returns. The fact that ESG is sort of really interesting because it lies within that unexpected return dimension. And I'm not talking about just divestments, but non-financial data in general tends to be difficult to pick to divine. And so I think that it's absolutely important to kind of think about expected returns relative to that sort of non-financial ESG sort of element when you think about the returns for a company. Great. And any recommendations for good books or podcasts that our listeners can sign up to? Other than your own one, that is, which we'll put in the show notes. I'd say that you guys have a fantastic podcast. Hats off to you guys. I do think that David Hickey and Adam Matthews have a fantastic one at talking responsibly. For me in this area, the area that I've been really fascinated about and that's sort of helped me is in political economy readings. I think it goes back to sort of the narrative. One of the interesting things that I always sort of tell analysts that are working with me is start with readings like, this is going to sound silly, but it's an academic essay called The Wizard of Oz's Monetary Allegory. It's a fantastic, just fantastic essay. But I think that there's a lot of reading that I've taken away that is directly applicable to ESG. I mean, I'll give you one example. I did a master's in political economy. So when you look at something like the theory of domestic audience costs, I won't go too much into that theory, but you can sort of certainly apply it to, as I did, changes in corporate governance or sort of turns in non-financial ESG sort of areas within sectors. It's paid in dividends. So wait, there's a, something called the Wizard of Oz's monetary <laughs> allegory. Yes. All linked to that. It's brilliant. I love allegories and analogies and metaphors and all that stuff. They're brilliant, aren't they? I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's a whole sort of history of, and actually there are a lot of parallels, in fact, to that period in the late 1800s to current American politics. We have a lot of polarization, political polarization. But the Wizard of Oz, OZ, is announced. You had this debate between the gold bugs back in the late 1800s and this inflationists, which were silverites. And so originally her shoes were silver in the book, and that's by design. So there are a lot of things that Bond, the author, had talked about within that book. For instance, the scarecrow representing the indebted Midwestern farmers, the winged monkeys supposedly being sort of the bankers, the East Coast bankers. That's brilliant. I can really see your literary side coming through there. And I mean that genuinely. We're missing something with all our spreadsheets and formulae. <laughs> There's stuff there on the literary side to be read. Brilliant. Well, Jason, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week. Mary will be back again, and we'll see you next week for another episode. Bye then. Perfect. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.